0: It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational.
1: And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you are still like
0: me or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do.
2: It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have.
0: Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game.
2: This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host.
0: Some things are worth fighting for. sound of cheers. That was climate protesters in Washington just a few days ago. Climate policy protesters, indigenous peoples protesters on sidewalks uh, doing sit-ins and trying to break into a federal facility. That was what they were doing right there. They were cheering as some man was hoisted up on top of another man and they're trying, they're breaking in the door as police are trying to prevent them from entering. And that's the interior department of the federal government. Uh, a federal building that they were breaking into. Perhaps you haven't heard about that. Did you hear about that? Did you hear about uh, environmentalist protesters trying to break through the door of the Interior Department uh, while chanting? No, I guess not. That They kind of did what sounded like they're accusing the January 6th protesters of doing, and that was uh, violently breaking into the Capitol and disrupting dis- uh, democracy and uh, trying to create an insurrection. Uh, but... Um, Uh, The desperate treatment of these two groups, and many others for that matter, is amazing. Today I want to talk about January the 6th because we've tracked it. Many of you are still tracking it, and it's been a bit since we've talked about it. I want you to have an update on uh, the prisoners that are still in the D.C. jail and what's happening with them. I'm going to give you some more particulars about what's happened to various people involved in this because It is still a nightmare for those involved. And I want to thank those of you that have been writing. I'm still getting uh, just information from some of you who have written to prisoners there, and you can still do that through PatriotMailProject.com. That's PatriotMailProject.com. I want to give you an idea. Now, this is not a letter that came to me from one of you through this. This is another letter uh, from one of the guys held in the D.C. prison. His name is uh, Jonathan Mellis. He's a detainee who was in the Capitol on January the 6th. He's been detained without bond since his arrest in February. And uh, in May, uh, U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan of uh, uh, General uh, uh, Michael Flynn fame, (laughs) the guy that was so badly treated, General Flynn, that's that's that judge, U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan, has denied his request to be released from custody for a week so he could attend his father's funeral. So not even that. And so he has written a letter, Jonathan Mellis. I'm not sure who this letter was sent to, but it's, it was uh, reported in an outlet. And I want to read it to you, okay, just to kind of take us there and help us to remember what's happening to these guys. He says, my name is Jonathan Mellis. I am a January 6th Capitol detainee being held in the D.C. jail. In the last seven months, I have experienced and witnessed the most inhumane "'and hateful treatment of my 34 years of life. "'I write this from solitary confinement on September 15th "'with no clear explanation as to why I've been isolated "'or how long I will be here. "'I have been locked in this small concrete cell "'for over a month at this point. "'They call it solitary confinement. "'They call it the hole. "'This is totally appropriate "'because I feel like I have been dropped "'to the bottom of a deep and dark hole "'in the ground and forgotten. "'I am alone.' My mind is all I have to keep me company, and that can become quite a scary thing after weeks weeks all alone, which makes this much worse. What makes this much worse is that I'm not told exactly why I was put down here and when this lonely torture will end. Every deadline given by the policy book to the jail to explain to me why I'm in solitary confinement has been totally ignored. If I were in trouble, I would have served a disciplinary report within... Uh, two days. I was not. I should have been seen by the housing board within seven days. I was not. I get no answers. All I get is lied to by sergeants and lieutenants. This kind of isolation and disrespect is very harmful to one's mind and body. At first, being locked in a small, moldy cell is horrible and sad. You miss human interaction, and your mind is racing. After a while, this turns into desperate loneliness and frustration, You get headaches for days at a time and try to sleep all day. It has become a real depression. You feel worthless and ignored. Then, as your energy starts to come back from sleeping all the time, it brings with it a ball of rage in your gut. You feel injured, angry, and helpless. You know you're being mistreated and there's nothing you can do about it. Your head hurts and your back muscles are tense. All the normal things in your life that give you stress are amplified and you are now consumed by bad and negative emotions. They are really hurting you. There is the feeling that you just want to collapse emotionally and physically. You just want to give up. The four walls of this concrete box are closing in on you. Your skin is crawling, and you feel claustrophobic. It is a nightmare. How long will they make me do this? I don't know. But I already know from experience that all of us January 6th detainees were held held on solitary confinement until July. So I know firsthand how long these monsters are willing to do this to me. I know this is in, inhumane, and people think it's okay because I'm a Trump supporter. I love people, and I try to live a virtuous life, but because I like Trump, they don't see me as human. They enjoy watching me suffer. It makes them smile. How sick is that? The pure hate with the Justice Department is obvious in their actions. They are a sadistic bunch. It's actually quite scary. There are over. And then he talks about the violent riots last year. And uh, how they were all left wing. But no, nobody's searching for those people, which is a point that we've made so often. But he goes on to say, those of us here, uh, we live in constant fear of being shackled and beaten by the correctional officers. This has already happened. Several of us have been beaten by the correctional officers, yet nobody really cares because we're Trump supporters. And then he says, I am currently engaged in a deep spiritual battle. I will not let evil win. I'm strong, but it's hard. They want to break me, but I will not let them. My love for this country will never end. Please do not believe everything you read about me in the newspaper. They are crucifying me before my trial. I was trying to help the people being crushed by police. And that brings us to a story that I've told you several times, a few times anyway. We're hearing more and more about, you know, we talked about people, a couple of people were supposedly crushed in the crowd. And one of them early on, we know her name now is Roseanne Boyland. And I've talked to you about her because the black activist from Los Angeles who was hit by Antifa and had both of his front teeth knocked out back, I believe, last spring, uh, came to D.C. on January the 6th, and he has said quite clearly, in fact, there are pictures to show it, he was thrown down next to Roseanne Boylan, and they'd actually become friends, and he said while she was being trampled, he held her hand, and he also said that she was beaten by Officer Lila Morris, and there are pictures showing Lila Morris hitting Roseanne Boylan with a stick. Now, we believe that that's one of the reasons why the D.C. operatives won't release the video of that day. Now, Royza, uh, Lila Morris has been touted as a hero of that day. She was friends with the two officers who testified uh, before the January 6th committee of how horrible the January 6th uh, uh, int- entrance the so-called insurrectionists were. Uh, but there's there's something wrong here. There's something really terribly wrong. And according to uh, um, Mellis, who's writing this letter, he said that what happened was when they saw the officer beat Yul, um, Roseanne Boyle, many of them got angry. And you're going to hear Julie Kelly in a few minutes, I think, talk about this a little bit, too, that there were some really, uh, apparently, some really rotten officers in that crowd. Many of them were, some were Capitol Police, but a lot of them were D.C. police. And that they uh, um, uh, they incited the ca- crowd. We talked about that, how they sh- they sent firebombs into the peaceful crowd. where People were just standing around doing nothing, and it was burning people and causing people to run and scream. They created the chaos, a lot of the chaos that ensued on that day. Uh, but um, this gentleman that's writing, uh, his name is Jonathan Mellis, is saying that he was right there. He was watching what was happening to Roseanne Boylan. In fact, I will I'll read what he says about her. Uh, Shane Jenkins, by the way, was another detainee and a witness, and he said that many in the crowd around the West entrance were incited by the violence of the police toward Boyland. She was laying unconscious, and when one of the officers kicked her out of the way like a piece of trash, that's when the crowd reacted and got involved. And uh, Mellis is one of those persons. He, uh, it's A video shows a police officer. Um, there's another police officer named Andrew. I can't read the last part of it. It's Andrew Way Something. It's got, they have his badge number. It's fifty-seven thirty-seven. He was—he kicked Boylan, and that's when Mellis, uh, seemingly, str- uh, springs into action. And he actually, he says in his letter here, he said, "I—I I was trying to help. I was trying to help," and they're trying to charge me, of course. With—with uh, with being violent toward the police, but what I was seeing was what caused him to spring into action. He said. Um, Gary McBride, who is a video analyst, says that clear body cam footage is what we need, what we need America to see. And they have formed a People's January the 6th commission to get the information out. It's being sealed and withheld from the public by the government, even though they are using it in court proceedings. And the real narrative, he says, of the West Capitol steps is that citizens were defending a woman who ultimately died at what uh, we believe to be at the hands of the police, if Officer Morris' full body cam footage gets released, all charges against those uh, in regard to Roseanne Boylan should be dropped. And so, but that's the letter that was sent uh, by Jonathan Mellis, and I wanted you to hear it. Then I wanted to tell you, um, as best I can, here another story. This is the one of uh, Thomas Caldwell. You've heard his name, I bet, because they say he was the leader of uh, Oath Keepers, but according to this article, he never even joined Oath Keepers. Let me read a little bit of what Julie Kelly says here. Thomas Caldwell's wife awakened him in a panic at 5.30 on January the 19th, 5.30 a.m. The FBI is at the door, and I'm not kidding, Sharon Caldwell told her husband. Caldwell, 66, clad only in his underwear, went to see what was happening outside his Virginia farm. There was a full SWAT team, armored vehicles with a battering ram, and people screaming at me. People who looked like stormtroopers were pointing M4 weapons at me, covering me with red laser dots. Agents demanded that Caldwell, a former lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy, who suffers from debilitating service-related spinal injuries, come outside and lay down to the grass. "'Someone grabbed my legs and dragged me through the grass. "'They threw me face down on the hood of the car, "'kicked my legs apart, put a chain around my waist, "'and put me in handcuffs. "'He looked up to see Sharon, his wife, of 22 years, "'dressed in her nightgown, "'holding her hands up with a sock in either hand. "'She, too, was covered in red dots "'from the weapons aimed at her. "'61, she begged to put on her socks "'before they forced her outside in the cold. "'I said a prayer, Father, "'please don't let them kill my wife,' Caldwell said." Callwell was forced into the back of a police car for nearly 40 minutes. He asked several times what he was being charged with FBI agents refused to answer. Eventually Callwell was led back to his house. I have a collector 63 Thunderbird in my in Thunderbird in my garage as a reminder of my grandfather, a retired army colonel. An agent kicked one of the doors open and was leaning with his battle gear up against the car, scratching it up. Once inside, Callwell saw his wife was okay. He was interrogated for at least two hours and realized the raid was tied to his participation in the January 6th protest in Washington. Okay, so then uh, let me move ahead. He, uh, Caldwell says he was—he never even joined the Oath Keepers. He's been charged with six federal cl- crimes. He, I don't think he even went inside the building. They said that he was a member of a paramilitary organization called Oath Keepers, and there were several other people who were also charged. As you read this article that Julie writes, you find out that he never entered the Capitol building, he has no cripple, criminal record, he served his country for 20 years as a commander of this ship, uh, and um, he spent 53 j- days in jail, 49 of them in solitary confinement, could not access ma- uh, his medication for his back pain. There's a lot more to this, but it just gives you an idea of how these people are being treated. We cannot forget them. So let's continue to write them at Mail Project. Sandy Rios in the morning
2: on American Family Radio.
1: I know you've spoken to the decision by the White House counsel's office to tell the archives to hand over those documents. Has there been any concern or conversation about what might happen one day when the shoes on the other foot? And if another administration of the other party comes in and says there's an extraordinary circumstance and they want to hand over documents that were deemed privileged by the Biden administration? I can assure you, Ed, that this president has no intention to lead an insurrection on our nation's capital. I um, anticipated that, that would be your answer almost word for word. Oh um, good. But part of I mean, you can understand that you're opening potentially a Pandora's box here. Actually we don't we don't see president. it that way. I understand why you're asking this question. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. I think it is ultimately important for people to understand and remember that January 6th was an incredibly dark day, one of the darkest days in our democracy. Uh, There was an insurrection on our nation's capital. What we're talking about here is getting to the bottom of that. Shouldn't everybody want to get to the bottom of that? Democrats, Republicans, people who have no political affiliation whatsoever. I will reiterate that we're going to assess and review, as is standard in the process, the documents and uh, any efforts to exert executive privilege on a case by case basis and we'll provide you updates on those as those processes proceed. And we will continue as it relates to executive privilege uh, for other issues to evaluate that on a case by case basis as every White House has in the past. But I think if you look back at past presidents, Democratic and Republican, uh, there isn't really a precedent for what we're talking about with the select committee and what they're trying to get to the bottom of and the uniqueness of that I think is important context.
0: That's your press secretary, Jen Psaki, uh, your friendly press secretary, announcing just a few days ago that the White House is uh, doubling down on getting private conversations, uh, meetings, anyone that President Trump talked to. Uh, this is generally covered. This is not public information. Uh, this is stuff that's private and personal. It's in his uh, records as president of the United States, and they're trying to get the uh, you know the uh, powers that be to release this information. Now, President Trump has sued this committee, And the National Archives, that's happened just uh, in the last 24 hours or 48 hours. Uh, And the the point is that they're suing for things that, um, by tradition in our country, have been personal to presidents in the past. Their right to talk to their advisors freely. And stuff is recorded, but it isn't released to the public. And so President Trump is fighting that. And you hear that Joe Biden's all over it because, of course, it was an insurrection on January 6th. We all know that. What is the matter with us? And we have to get to the bottom of it. Well, Julie Kelly has been writing all about January 6th. uh, And I appreciate so much her writing. She is um, a senior contributor to American Greatness. uh, And she does political commentary on lots of things. But she has been, honestly, the person who has been tracking January 6th the most Faithfully, and she joins us this morning. Good morning, Julie.
2: Good morning, Sandy. Thanks for having me on.
0: We've talked a lot about those thousands of hours, I think it was 14,000 hours of video uh, inside the Capitol building that parts had been lifted out to create this narrative that the people that went inside the Capitol on January the 6th were attacking police officers, they were destroying. Uh, doing all kinds of bad things. We've seen these clips, but the argument was that there's so much more video that they will not release, but now some of it has been released. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so uh, as you said, there are 14,000 hours of surveillance video that the U.S. Capitol Police uh, security system captured on January 6th between noon and eight o'clock that day. The government, Joe Biden's Justice Department, is trying to keep all of that footage under wraps. They have designated it as highly sensitive government material. U.S. Capitol Police also do not want it released. Um, Any clips that are used in any sort of court proceedings are under tight protective orders. But what's happening, Sandy, is defense attorneys are fighting back on the government's attempt to conceal this video. And interestingly enough, so is the news media. There's a group called the Press Coalition made up of about 15 major news organizations, including CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS News, The Wall Street Journal, et cetera, who also are enjoining these motions made in court by defense attorneys seeking to make these clips public. Well, what happened uh, yesterday is thanks to the Press Coalition and its defense attorney for Ethan Nordine who's one of the Proud Boy defendants, the government was forced to release a 40-minute clip. This is the biggest chunk of time we've been able to see from what was happening inside the building uh, that was captured by these security cameras, a 40-minute clip from about 2.25 until 3 o'clock that afternoon. What we saw, Sandy, is what a lot of people have testified to, um, and what actually Senator Ron Johnson confirmed in a letter a few months ago is that doors were left open on the Upper West Terrace uh, side of the Capitol, and police were standing there allowing more than 300 people to enter the building during that time. Uh, these people were not aware that they were not permitted into the building. They saw police there. Um, there's a question as to how the inside double doors got open. There was a U.S. Capitol Police officer who was holding open an interior door um, who directed five or six men who walked out of, the, uh, out of the building, left this door open intentionally for all these people to start pouring in. So you see at least five or six Capitol Police officers standing there, letting these people in. The door to the inside, which led to the rotunda, was left open as well. But a lot of those people have been charged with misdemeanors. Their lives have been destroyed because of it, but this video contradicts not just the media and the Democrats' narrative, but what the government is saying in official court filings: is that these people forcibly made their way inside the building, or they unlawfully entered the building? And we now know from this video clip that is completely false.
0: You know, Julie, you've been tracking uh, the way people. Uh, okay. I told you before, and I will repeat again, that many of the people that listen to this show were there on that day. I've said before that I would have been there that day except for an accident my husband had. Uh, uh, So many good people were there because they supported Donald Trump, and they were very concerned about what was going to happen in terms of certifying the electors. It was a genuine concern uh, for what had happened in the uh, 2020 election. And so as a result of that, uh, their phones been accessed, their banking records have been accessed, and then you've written extensively about the way people, various people around the country, have been treated in their homes by raids by the FBI. Could you just give us a few examples of the kinds of things you have discovered in your research and writing?
2: You know, Sandy, it's it's so heartbreaking and terrifying and infuriating to hear how the FBI is on this nationwide, I call it terror campaign, uh, to harass and intimidate and really destroy the lives. And we're talking people who are charged with misdemeanors. These aren't necessarily even people who are charged with attacking police, which many of those cases are sketchy too. We're talking about people who are ultimately charged with parading and picketing in the Capitol, disorderly conduct, entering a restricted area, nothing major. And in fact, yesterday after that clip posted, I heard from a woman who was charged with the basic four misdemeanors, and she was in tears. And she said, This proves what we have been saying is that we were allowed into the building. She and her husband were inside for less than 10 minutes. Their lives have been destroyed. The FBI raided their home with their three children inside. Uh, you know, guns drawn. Uh, these FBI agents are fully armed, they come with a full cadre of official vehicles. They knock down their front door, they terrorize the entire family, take all of their electronics, refuse to show a warrant, which I hear over and over, because once these people do see the warrant, they realize that they were not allowed to take, say, the 14 year old cell phone, which they, did, which they did in this particular case. Um, they, they're just terrorizing these people and intimidating them. The FBI visited this particular home a couple of times just to continue to intimidate and bully them for no reason. These people have no record. They've lost their jobs, their reputation in their community is ruined. Um, And this is just sending a message, Sandy. These people are not merely proxies. They are proxies to the rest of us, that this is what will happen to you if you speak out against the regime, particularly if you continue to promote the idea that the 2020 election was illegitimate, which tens of millions of of Americans continue to believe justifiably so. Um, And you have Joe Biden's Justice Department hauling these people into court, hauling them off to a special prison in Washington, D.C., where they await trials that won't start until next month, uh, excuse me, next year. Um, And this is what our Justice Department, FBI, and federal courts are now consumed with. Uh, Now more than 650 people arrested and charged with uh, new arrests coming every week.
0: Yeah, there are more people now added, I just heard last week, that more have been placed in the jail. I think there were, well, all right, you tell me the numbers. What is our estimate of how many people now are incarcerated in that horrible D.C. jail right now?
2: So there are about three dozen, Sandy, who are in this particular section of the D.C. prison system that has been set aside to house January 6th defendants only, So there are about three dozen more, maybe 40 now, because there are a few people who just arrived. I just heard that uh, last week. And in fact, a judge sentenced another man uh, to go to the D.C. jail, uh, where let's keep in mind a federal judge last week referred the jail to the Justice Department for potential civil rights violations in that jail. But judges don't care. These are Beltway judges appointed by Obama, Trump, Clinton, Reagan. It doesn't matter. They're all part of the swamp. They're sending these people to the CC jail. So there's about 40 there now. But there are another 30 who are incarcerated under free trial detention orders. This means they have been denied the chance to even make bail. Uh, they will be in jail until their trial starts next year. And there are about 30 of those men who are in various prisons across the country. So we're talking about 70 to 75 who are in jail, incarcerated, denied bail, awaiting trials. Uh, that, as I said, won't start until the middle or late next year.
0: Julie, I want to kind of uh, affirm, underscore what you just said. D.C. has been home base for me for many years. And when I talk to my D.C.-centric friends, even immediately after January 6th, I was uh, covering this from a distance with a different perspective and when I enter the washington d c circles, even conservatives, even friends of mine, they had a very different view of what happened. There was uh an offense there was uh they believed everything that they heard they they sort of uh, reflected the anger that Mitch McConnell showed. yeah how dare they you know reach the people's house you know the, and kind of interrupt democracy because what we're doing is so important, how dare the people Come in here. And so it's taken, I have to tell you, it's taken months to shake that loose. I mean, I had to go to bat with my friends trying to help them understand what really was in the mindset of the people that came and what they were trying to do. It's amazing. It was like a fog, but what else is new? DC is generally a fog. And so it, on this, it's been the same thing. And that's why what you said about the judges is true. It doesn't matter who appointed them, it's not. The Republicans were just as freaked out for the most part about this as the Democrats, and wrongfully, concluded wrongfully what was happening. I, I, um, Julie, I'd like to go, I'd like to read from one of your articles, because I want to underscore this too. You talk at length about how people have been treated. And I, I want to read just a couple of, this is from uh, your uh, um, article called The FBI's Incurable rot." And you say the FBI raided the home of an Alaska couple, then handcuffed and interrogated them in separate rooms for hours until investigators realized they had the wrong suspects. A 69-year-old man in New York suffered a heart attack as FBI agents raided his apartment with a television news crew standing by. The man never was charged. FBI agents arrested a Florida man in front of his wife and young daughter who asked why officers were locking Daddy's hands. Casey Kusick was charged only with misdemeanors for entering the Capitol on January the 6th. And last but not least, agents seized as evidence a Lego set of the Capitol building during the raid of Robert Morse, an Army Ranger with three tours in Afghanistan. Far from nefarious intent, Morse had the Lego set to use with his students as a substitute high school history teacher, and he was fired after his arrest. I think that that really illustrates... In a, in a microcosm, because there's a lot more stories like that, what's happening with how people are being treated. Um, and so, in fact, that while we're there, let's talk about this, about how, about, uh, how FBI agent uh, director Robert Ray, Robert, Christopher Ray, <laughs> has been uh, executing this this uh, investigation of the people. Just say a few words about that, Julie. I'm sorry, repeat that, Sandy? Well, Chris Ray has been boasting about how many resources yes. he's put into investigating people in the country. The Capitol Police have now been granted millions of dollars to start a national force. So what's been the effect of this?
2: Well, so Christopher Ray has designated January 6th as an act of domestic terror. And this allows the FBI and of course, other agencies, Department of Homeland Security, the intelligence community, which is breaching its authority to go after Americans, which it's not permitted to, it's only supposed to target uh, foreign threats. So because he designated it in an, uh, an act of domestic terror, these people are being treated as terrorists. Um, and you I've heard this word actually used in a few court documents and in sentencing hearings. For example, there was a man from Florida named Paul Hodgkins. He was in the Senate chamber. You might recall he had long hair and he placed a Trump flag in the middle of the Senate chamber. They referred to him as a domestic terrorist. He will go to jail now for eight months on pleading guilty for one charge of obstruction.
0: Oh, wow. All right, that's just one story, and that's one of many. Julie Kelly is our guest. Julie has really been the champion on this January 6th follow-up. There's a, there are a lot of stories to tell on this, uh, but I want uh, to bring you up to date as best I can today. And when we return, I do want to talk a little bit more about Royce Lamberth's, uh, actually, some good news, uh, how he tried to hold some of the D.C. jail officials in contempt. Uh, we want to talk about, um, I'd love to talk about what's happened uh, to Thomas Caldwell. Caldwell. I think that's a fascinating story and a few other things that Julie has written. So please stay tuned. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.
1: Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook
2: or email Sandy at sandy at afr.net. That's sandy at afr.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio.
1: found D.C. corrections officials in contempt over the treatment of a January 6th defendant, referred the matter to the D.O.J. for a civil rights investigation into whether other Capitol riot defendants are facing similar conditions. U.S. District Court Judge Royce Lambert said he would not issue contempt sanctions against D.C. Jail Wharton, Wanda Patton, and Quincy Booth, the director of the D.C. Department of Corrections, after a long delay in turning over medical records related to a defendant's injury that required surgery. Lamberth had found that the officials did not turn over records that were needed to the operation for defendant Christopher Worrell, a Proud Boys member, charged with four felonies over the January 6th riot.
0: Okay, so that was a Hill report. <laughs> that reported that sounds hello. Typical. He sort of sort of reveals the mood of Washington and the the uh, the icky factor that sets in when you're there. Uh, yeah, that's right. the story, sort of. But Julie Kelly, uh, there's more to that than that's that was actually good news, wasn't it? It actually
2: was good news, and I only give two cheers. To Royce Lamberth because he has been one of the judges who has uh, acquiesced to Joe Biden's Justice Department demands that people like Chris Worrell be held uh, detained behind bars, denied bail, awaiting trial. He rejected Chris Warell's uh, plea mm-hmm. motion to get out of jail in June, go back home, so he could get treatment for his broken hand and for his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which, as I now understand, is in stage three. He needs intensive chemotherapy and radiation, as they described in his uh, hearing last week. Royce Lambert, it's nice that he said that. He still won't let um, Chris Worrell go home to Florida so he can get care by his doctors there. He has to rot in this D.C. jail. So, but Royce Lambert uh, did hold in contempt both the warden of this D.C. jail and the director of the D.C. Department of Corrections because they refused to turn over documents he requested related to Mr. Worrell's care Um, and also referred this matter to the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. Ha ha, like they're going to do anything because quite frankly, Sandy, after listening to these prosecutors talk and what they write, the idea that these people are being tormented in the D.C. jail actually gratifies these prosecutors and the people in charge of the DOJ. This is exactly what they want, which is why they keep asking judges to keep these January 6th defendants behind bars. So we'll see what the DOJ does. The only difference between, say, a letter from a, you know, useless Republican senator to DOJ about this and Royce Lambert is that if he doesn't hear back from the DOJ about what's happening there, he still oversees quite a few cases. Uh, prosecutions in January six, so I don't think that he will take kindly being ignored on this matter, so it was a little vindication at the very least'll we'll give these detainees uh, a rationale or basis to sue the government uh, after they hopefully get out of jail someday
0: let's talk about the FBI again because a long time ago you know the the, the when Governor Whitmer's kidnap plot became public. <laughs> My husband and I. My husband's a former FBI director. We looked at each other and said, "This just smells. Something's rotten here. This is not right. This is. This just doesn't ring true." And it turns out it it wasn't really true. It was a complete construct of the FBI itself, uh, setting up people, organizing the event, uh, paying for the so-called plot. And I think it's pretty much fallen. I think it's pretty much fallen apart in Michigan. But you say. Uh, Julie, that this is part of a larger operation, which I didn't even know about. Can you talk about that, of the FBI?
2: Right. So um, I have to give kudos to BuzzFeed News because they have been really uh, the ones exposing what's happened in this Whitmer case, where what has been revealed is at least 12 FBI informants and undercover agents were part of this plot to, quote-unquote, kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Um, So basically you have one FBI asset per defendant. They have uh, 13 men who have been charged with the kidnapping plot and you have at least 12 FBI undercover agents and informants who are working on this case. And so it's really been interesting to see how this all unfolded, but there was a little snippet in the BuzzFeed and I urge people if they're interested to go read their reporting on this. Or you can read my reporting, which links to BuzzFeed, which is even better, Um, but they Uh talk about how... The FBI started in the spring of 2020, something called Operation Cold Snap. Now, this allegedly was an operation to infiltrate and surveil, quote unquote, again, militia groups uh, that ostensibly support Donald Trump. So this was a multi-state operation that used FBI assets to, uh, they say, infiltrate or observe what these militia groups were planning, especially related to anti-lockdown protests. Well, as you continue through to, uh, uh, you know, the Whitmer plot and how that came together and how these FBI assets really were the ones who constructed the kidnapping plot, paid for all of the surveillance trips, uh, set these people up to buy explosive devices, had them photographed uh, trying at, you know, some kind of uh, firearms training camp, everything related to that was set up by their major informant at the guidance of the special agents in charge, one of whom, the lead agent, has been fired by the FBI and dismissed from the case after he was arrested for beating up his wife last summer after a swingers party. So these are the kind of people that you have running the FBI, not very encouraging. But you have to wonder, Operation Cold Snap, was that part of infiltrating or guiding the actions of what happened on January 6th? For example, Sandy, you have the Oath Keepers case. You have at least 20 defendants charged for conspiracy for attacking the Capitol, as they say. But person one, Stuart Rhodes, who is the leader of the Oath Keepers, who, based on all the communications that the government has, really was the one who was inciting and organized these people to go to D.C. on the 5th and 6th, he still has not been charged more than nine months later. Why not? He was in Washington. He was at the Capitol that day. He didn't go inside. But if you're talking about conspiracy charges, he would be the lead man who would have put together this conspiracy. So as Darren Beatty has uh, questioned over <clears throat> excuse me, the past few months at Revolver News, why is Stuart Rhodes still not charged? Why are there quite a few uh, people who are unindicted co-conspirators? It, this is the government's major conspiracy case. Who are those people? Why are they still walking around free? When you have a person like Thomas Caldwell, a disabled Navy vet who was dragged out of his house, dragged through his own property on January 19th, held behind bars for 53 days before he was finally released. He didn't even go inside the building. He wasn't organizing anything. Why is he charged and his life, said put through hell, but Stuart Rhodes isn't? So these are legitimate questions. If you put all of these little puzzle pieces together, And now that we know, thanks to the New York Times, uh, at least two informants were on the ground infiltrated with the Proud Boys that day. And the Proud Boys were really the ones who first breached the very weak, flimsy police lines that day. Um, And so it raises a lot of questions. We know the FBI, uh, you know, we see Christopher Steele popping up his head the past few days as a reminder to how the FBI uses its power, uses informants like Christopher Steele to uh, interfere in our elections, which is what they did in 2016, um, certainly in 2018, and then in 2020, because the news of the Whitmer plot was revealed as early voting was underway in a key state of Michigan, made a lot of headlines, blamed it on Donald Trump, who knows how that news influenced voters. And so we have yet another example of the FBI interfering in our elections and possibly in post-election activity as well.
0: Well, the other thing that you talk about is that the the FBI direct, uh FBI, uh, well, the person who was in charge of kind of uh, orchestrating that Whitmer uh, situation was soon thereafter sent to the field office of the FBI in Washington, D.C., and was right. the agent uh, in charge now when January 6th took place. And what are you? What's the inference about that? Why, why talk about that?
2: So, his name is Stephen D'Antono, I believe is how you pronounce it. So, he was the uh, chief of the Detroit FBI field office. So, he would be the guy who was pulling all the strings, knew what these special agents were doing, and was very well aware of the FBI's infiltration orchestration of the Whitmer plot. So, why a week after they expose, reveal what happened with this Whitmer case? They've arrested all these people. This was on October 7th. Why on October 13th did Chris Ray move him to the head of the D.C. field office, which is a plum job? So it just raises questions as to, well, you had this this man in charge of the the Detroit field office. They were the ones who put together the Whitmer kidnapping plot, as well as part of this bigger Operation Cold Snap. Then you move him to D.C. because he is going to be the one in charge of managing his FBI agents in D.C., which they knew after the election, there was going to be trouble no matter what. If Trump won, if Biden won, if it was still up in the air, whatever. And so I think why they moved him there um, and what he has done in that FBI field, and we now know for sure that there were FBI informants in the Proud Boys. I'm sure that there were probably dozens of FBI assets involved in uh, on the ground on January 6th. So these are the sort of questions that only a handful of people in the media are raising, Darren Beatty at Revolver News, more importantly. And so I just think that it's once you put the pieces together, dating all the way back to 2016, this is an extension of Crossfire Hurricanes, but um, we now know that the FBI is corrupt, cannot be trusted, and they will do anything not just to go after Donald Trump but his supporters now, too.
0: Well, Julie, one of the glaring things that is mind-boggling is that the FBI has basically refused to put the resources in going after Antifa and Black Lives Matter. It's as though they're not a threat. I think uh, what Christopher Ray said under testimony that Antifa was not organized. They were, it was an idea. They were not organized. Right, right. But, uh, but the, you know, the January 6th people, the folk that came from these various states around the country in support of Donald Trump, they were organized and insidious and insurrectionist. And uh, the glaring uh, uh, absence of any any kind of news, after Antifa and Black Lives Matter had been so present in Washington, D.C., and causing so much trouble for Trump supporters uh, when they would come to D.C. and for Trump himself and rioting in the streets, etc., their absence, apparent absence, from news reports on January 6th just makes it sound like, if you had to write a plot for a a novel, that that was intentional too. Why wouldn't they be there? I ask myself, why wouldn't they have been there on January the 6th? Why wouldn't they come? Well, here's
2: my response to that. Who needs Antifa when you have the U.S. Capitol Police and D.C. Metro Police doing basically your job for you? So I've asked people about Antifa infiltration that day. Haven't really gotten a good answer. There've only been a handful of people. Say John Sullivan, who we know is the, well, Black Lives Matter. Um, so same sort of side of the political spectrum. He is the uh, man who actually videoed the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. Um, so I don't. I'm not confirmed. I don't know as much about Antifa infiltration that day. But you had enough people there who were agitating provoking the crowd. And that that was unfortunately law enforcement officers. Um, But that is, and we do know that, and this was just confirmed again in a house hearing, Nancy Mace confronted an FBI official and said, you know, how are you tracking Antifa violence? You know, you have a whole database, Sandy, at the Department of Justice. With an entire list of every one of the 650 plus people who've been arrested, what their charges were, where they were arrested, their uh, grand jury indictments against them. There's no such thing for Antifa or Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is obviously an egregious double standard of justice. We see it play out every single day. And I think that's what infuriates Americans the most. They want people who committed violent crimes on January 6th to be held accountable. But when you see the same sort of behavior, it's not worse. Uh, charges repeatedly dropped against the Antifa, BLM uh, rioters, protesters, etc. Uh, but yet you have trespassers whose lives are destroyed. And the FBI raiding their homes at five thirty in the morning, pointing guns at their children. Uh, this is not acceptable behavior by any means. And the left should be speaking out against this too.
0: Well, I tell you, it, it, it actually heartens me to hear you talk about uh, journal journalistic organizations going together to try to get to force this video to come out from the Capitol. I that's something I did not know. So I'm encouraged by that. I mean, that's something. And so uh, Julie, your writing is terrific on this. Julie Kelly is you can find her on Twitter, all of her latest stuff. American Greatness is a great outlet that I talk about almost every day. And uh, they've got great writers. Julie. Pardon? Thank you so much
2: for that. We appreciate it.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. So it's American Greatness, and you need to go right to their website to find their stuff because you know how social media is. Julie Kelly, thanks for this update. We appreciate it so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.